0: Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different. We're actually closing out the book of Ruth, but it's also Palm Sunday, which means I need to be creative in the way in which I meld these two things together. And so what we're going to do is one-third of the service, uh, the sermon is actually going to be devoted to Palm Sunday. One-third of it is going to be devoted to Ruth chapter 4, the close of our, our series together. And then the last third is I'm going to do my best to give you four appeals or pleas Uh, of application of what the book of Ruth can teach us and how we can apply it as followers of Christ. And so I'm going to pray that the Lord would meet with us. Father, we have gathered in this place, and God, I know that you are honored by our gathering. And I know that you are present among us because you have promised in your word that these things are so. God, we know that when we ascribe to you glory and power and majesty, when we declare to you the things you revealed yourself to be, which is always good and faithful and true, God, that we are forming our hearts through our mouths to the understanding properly and the truth of who you are. So, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you that by your grace you awakened us today. God, thank you that by your grace we have breath to breathe. God, thank you for gathering us together as the children of God. And now, Lord, as we sit under the teaching, I pray that you would be faithful to me and to us. God, you would sustain your word. We know, as Jeremiah 1 says, that you see, you watch over your word to accomplish what you want to accomplish through us. So we ask that you would do that. So, God, be with us, we ask. Encourage us, rebuke us, correct us, comfort us, love us. Do whatever it is you need to do. And we'll give you the thanks for what that is in Jesus' name. Today is Palm Sunday, also known as Triumphal Entry, the Triumphal Entry Day. This week marks, like I said, the beginning of Holy Week, and uh, I just encourage you to take some time to read through from the Triumphal Entry through the rest of the gospel. Whatever gospel you pick, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, find the Triumphal Entry and read that and then begin to read it through. And that is the Holy Week, the things that happened there. The triumphal entry is when Jesus made his final descent from the Mount of Olives in the west, and, or excuse me, in the east, and he began to go west to Jerusalem. And if you remember, this is a key significance about the direction that he is going. Because if you remember in Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast east out of the garden. And so the curse of sin, the curse of Adam, is that they are east from the presence of God. And yet what you see is Jesus At the Mount of Olives, calling forth his disciples to bring the the colt so that he can ride it from the west or from the east back into the city of the west. And that whole thing is a significant moment because it's signifying Jesus is reversing the curse. Something significant is happening here. This is something to pay attention to. And so we're going to read from Matthew chapter 21, Matthew 21 verses 1 through 9. And then we're going to jump over to the book of mark and we'll read three verses from there in chapter 11 of the book of mark and so we read matthew 21 starting in verse 1 through 9. now when they drew near to jerusalem and came to bethphage to the mount of olives then jesus sent two disciples saying to them go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her untie them and bring them to me if anyone says anything to you you shall say the lord needs them and he will send them at once blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Hosanna in the highest and when he entered Jerusalem the whole city was stirred up who is this and the crowd said this is the Prophet Jesus from Nazareth and Galilee Mark chapter 11 verse 8 and 9 and 10 and you can see this is the last end of that of uh, what just happened many spread their cloaks on the road and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. When I read something like that, one of the first thoughts I have in my mind is, why were the crowds and the disciples saying these things? Why did they talk like that? Why were they exclaiming, Hosanna in the highest? And why were they claiming that Jesus was the son of David and blessed be the name of the Lord for he's coming in the kingdom of David why do they talk like this what's the significance if you notice the crowds and the disciples were saying two things that Jesus is the son of David they were celebrating that and they were also praising God for the fact that with Jesus coming to Jerusalem is also the coming of the kingdom of David and why do they talk like that it's because number one they were expecting the Messiah At this time, there was such an anticipation and an expectation for the appearance of the Messiah that everyone was kind of thinking anyone could be someone. (laughs) And so we read in Luke chapter 3, verse 15 that the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John the Baptist, whether he might be the Messiah. And so that just gives a flavor of the entire culture of the time. Everyone was just wondering, could he be, could he be, could he be, could he be? Who's the Messiah? The fact that Jesus came from the east into the city is just the identification that this man is fulfilling scripture. This man is no mere man. He's the Messiah. And so they knew because they were expecting the Messiah that this could be him. And the other thing is this, is they knew that the Messiah was supposed to be the offspring of David. They knew that. Because they, they knew their Davidic covenant and we at Golden Hills know our Davidic covenant. And we've done First and 2 Samuel. We've worked through the covenants. And so we remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 and 13, where it reads, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever. These people knew their Bibles. They knew that God had promised one day to send the Messiah, who would be the offspring of David, and with him would come a kingdom that would last forever. And so when they were praising God, Hosanna in the highest, to the son of David, And blessed be God, because of the coming of the kingdom of David, what they were saying is, here's our Messiah. Everything that God had been working towards, everything that God had promised, they all find their yes and amen now. And that's the beauty of the triumphal entry. It's a celebration that God has finally come. Now, why did Jesus want to go to Jerusalem? You can see that he really wanted to go to Jerusalem um, because he told his disciples elsewhere uh, in chapter 20 that we have to go here and and the question really is why? Why did he want to go to Jerusalem so badly? And there's really two answers. Firstly, the reason why he wanted to go to Jerusalem was to fulfill prophecy. You see this in Matthew 21 verse four, that this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. So Jesus wanted to make sure he was fulfilling prophecy. But the other reason why Jesus wanted to go to Jerusalem is because he must. In other words, he had to. You see, the New Testament describes the coming of Jesus very explicitly, Luke 19.10, as this. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus came into the world to save sinners in 1 Timothy. And Jesus himself confesses that he came to call sinners to repentance in Luke 5. The question is, how would Jesus save sinners? How in the world is Jesus going to seek and save the lost? And what was he going to do in Jerusalem that would have the kind of sweeping effect to call sinners to repentance and to save them from their sins? What was Jerusalem all about? He says he must go the New Testament admits that him going there was purposeful and the reality is Jesus was going to Jerusalem knowing that he was about to suffer look at this in Matthew chapter 20 verse 17 to 19 so if you're in your Bible just kind of work left and you'll find it verse 17 and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them see We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. See, Jesus says, see, we're going to Jerusalem. That's the goal. That's the plan. And when we go there, it's going to get kind of crazy. I'm about to be delivered, and I will be condemned, and I will be murdered, but I will rise from the dead. That's his plan. So what's interesting is this isn't the first time, actually, Jesus talked like this. This is the third time. In fact, if you go left again in your Bible, there's a a second time that he mentions this in Matthew chapter 17, verse 22. And it says that as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus says to his disciples, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. And then look at the response of the disciples at hearing this news. And they were greatly distressed. But if you notice, the text doesn't say anything more about them asking questions. For instance, if you're distressed and the guy who you are following everywhere goes, hey, this is about to go down, and you're thinking, wait, what? And you're feeling distressed. Notice the disciples had no freedom to question Jesus. They didn't even ask him anything. They didn't ask for any follow-up any clarification and i wonder why why wasn't there freedom for the disciples to dialogue with jesus and i think the answer is because this is the second time he talked about this the first time he talked about this it didn't go so well let's go to matthew or excuse me mark chapter 8 mark chapter 8. in mark chapter 8 is the first time jesus talks about going to jerusalem and experiencing these things He began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man, Mark chapter 8, verse 31, that the Son of Man must, must, not maybe, not might, not perhaps, not hopefully, must. That's definitive. And what he must do is suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now, in verse 32, it says that Jesus said this plainly, which means that he spoke in such a way that everyone understood they were all nodding. Whoa. But they were clear. On what he was talking about. There's no misunderstanding here. He was speaking to them with precision and clarity. They understood it. So much so that Peter then, it says, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Now, rebuke means to correct because you disagree with someone sharply. So Jesus says that he must, must. Suffer, be rejected, murdered, and rise from the dead. That must happen. And then, verse 33 But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus turns and looks at the other disciples. He sees them, he looks at them, and that is the indication that he's concerned for them. He's concerned for what they're thinking, what they're feeling, what they're experiencing in that moment of Jesus being rebuked. He's concerned. He turns, or excuse me, he turns to sees them. He then rebukes Peter. And he says, get behind me, Satan. Uh-oh. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You see, Jesus looks at the disciples, and having that concern for them, he realizes the thing he must do is rebuke Peter. And the reason why he needs to rebuke Peter is because Peter's mind is not set on the things of God. Peter's mind is set on the things of man. You see, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem, and I must suffer. I must be delivered over. I must be murdered. I must rise from the dead. And Peter takes Jesus to the side and says, you mustn't. You're dead wrong. You don't have to go there. You don't need to go there. You don't must need to go there. You don't. No! You're wrong. Uh oh. I think what Peter's thinking is no servant of God must suffer. No servant of God must be rejected. No servant of God must be murdered. No servant of God must rise from the dead, although that's the best of them. And in Peter's mind, he's thinking, suffering and the certainty of the will of God, those are incompatible. It can't be God's will that you suffer. That's incompatible. So Jesus, you're dead wrong. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why Larry and I try to preach with theology, because theology is simply knowing God, and you can't preach a Christian sermon without the knowledge of God, by definition. We have to preach theology with accuracy, because what Peter got wrong here was his theology. He thought it is incompatible for God to be sovereign and providential and there to be suffering in the will of God. That's incompatible. And what Jesus says is your idea that it's incompatible is because your mind is set on the fallen man's mindset, not on the things of God. Peter, you don't understand me, therefore get behind me, Satan. So when I hear people say, Phil, why do you preach with clarity and accuracy about theology? It's because I don't want to hear, get behind me, Satan. I want to hear, well done, thy good and faithful servant. And so we as a church, so we as a church, brothers and sisters, this is why we can't balk at the time it takes to speak clearly and plainly and accurately about the things of God. God is God and there is no other. Let's speak true about him. Jesus says, Peter, you got this dead wrong. Now the reason why i think peter is thinking that suffering as a part of the will of god is incompatible with the sovereignty and providence of god is because when peter starts preaching in the early church in acts chapter 2 and 3 part of his sermon is the correction look at this in acts chapter 2 verse 23 peter preaching says this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men god raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. in the next sermon peter preaches in acts chapter 3 verse 18 but what god foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his messiah would suffer he thus fulfilled In other words, God spoke to the prophets and said, my will, read Isaiah 53, my will is that the Messiah will suffer. And what God has prophesied, he has fulfilled in Jesus. And then you see the early church praying together in Acts chapter 4, verse 27. They said, for truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see, Jesus had to correct Peter's thinking. It was indeed the sovereign plan of God that Jesus would suffer, that Jesus would be rejected, that Jesus would be murdered, that Jesus would rise from the dead in order to save sinners. To think that suffering and pain and calamity is not part of God's sovereignty is dead wrong, according to Jesus. So the sovereignty of God also, brothers and sisters, is essential to the gospel. This is why we've been honing in on this and emphasizing it so much. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three and four, the most succinct explanation of the gospel when the apostle Paul writes, For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Remember, in accordance to what God said would happen. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So the fact that Paul says Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection for our sins, that it was in accordance with the Scriptures, means that it was God's plan to... Promise and fulfill Scripture, and that He had a sovereign, eternal plan to do it. So, the very nature of the gospel itself, what is essential to it, is the sovereignty and the providence of God. And so, the gospel is not good luck. Man, it just all came together. Whoa. In fact, the gospel is the good news of the redemptive plan of God from eternity past to rescue sinners from the wrath of God, to save them, to become his own people by the crucifixion and resurrection of his one and only son. That was what God was up to. Now how in the world does that connect with Ruth? Palm Sunday is a great celebration that the king has come. The promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled. Jesus is the Messiah. He's come from the east to the west. He's reversing the curse. He's coming to Jerusalem, and he must come in order that he may die and rise again and thus secure an eternal redemption to save people who will be reconciled to God and each other. That all had to happen. And you know what? Part of that having to happen is the book of Ruth. Remember, if there's no King David, then the people couldn't shout, Hosanna in the highest to the son of David. And yet, if there was no Boaz and Ruth, there could be no King David. And if there's no Ruth and Boaz, and therefore no King David, then there certainly can't be a King Jesus. And so yet, God was orchestrating everything under his sovereign plan to redeem a people. And what that means for us as Christians, brothers and sisters, is so awesome. We as Christians, There is always a connection between the ordinary things of your life and the amazing work of God in human history in that he's accomplishing his eternal purposes through your ordinary life, whether or not you realize it. That's awesome. That means you wake up tomorrow, if you're a Christian, God has something purposeful in your life and eternal in your life and significant in your life. Don't wake up tomorrow going, "Uh, blah, blah got to no wake up God's gonna do eternally significant things today just by me driving in my lane on the freeway (laughs) just by showing up to work and working hard ordinary conversations God is doing things and you don't even realize it praise God your life is not inconsequential all right so let's go to Ruth chapter 4 We already read verse 13 in part last week. But you remember, Ruth and Boaz get married. She becomes his wife. And it says that she went into her, and the Lord gave her conception. She bore a son. I love this. Look at it. Ordinary things, marriage. A whole gaggle of people just got married this weekend, none of whom you will probably ever meet. Ordinary stuff. And not only that, but then it's just ordinary stuff like sex. But then you look at it, the Lord gave conception. It's Yahweh working in ordinary things. And so Ruth bears a son. And then look at the women in verse 14. The women say to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh, blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him the names, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. When you look at this, the women give a blessing. And normally when blessings are given, they're put in the positive, which means we bless... Yahweh, we bless God for this thing, which is positive. We bless God, we thank God for this job, for this child, for this house, for this food. And yet the blessing here in verse 14 is in the negative. Blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day. Without. Notice the negative words. The author is trying to get us to see something in the blessing itself. That it's unorthodox. It's not Ordinary. There's something significant in the blessing. And what is it? Well, when you turn to chapter 1, verse 20, you see when Naomi comes back, she says, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. So in Naomi's mind, God, you took everything from me, and now I'm empty. I got nothing. And the women of the town say, "Uh -uh -uh. blessed be Yahweh because he has not left you empty. Do not at this moment, Naomi, determine the end of the story before you know it. Your present circumstances are not the end of the matter. And so Naomi thought, oh, I'm doomed. And she's there going, Yahweh has done this. He's left me empty. I just can't. I can't go on with life. He's ruined my life. There's no hope for me. And the women go, oh, yeah. God wasn't done with your story yet. So don't claim today what you have no idea tomorrow holds. And remember, brothers and sisters, we are not ultimately in control of our lives. God has numbered our days. And therefore, if God has numbered our days and they perhaps exceed tomorrow, then don't bemoan today if you don't know what God has in store for tomorrow. And I love this because it's a great pastoral encouragement. Recently, there was someone that came and we were chatting and they recently were diagnosed with cancer. And they came and they go, you know, I just, I just need encouragement. I'm just devastated by this news. And I said, yeah, rightly so. But let me tell you, God has never promised that he's going to heal your cancer. Not in this life. But what God has promised is he's promised to comfort you. He has promised to be with you no matter what. And I want to remind you that God has also promised that we're going to eventually, one day, we're going to get new bodies. And the new bodies we're going to get are going to be eternally free of cancer. There will be no more pain, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more death anymore. And so one way or another, you're ultimately in the hand of God, and whether he takes your life here, he's going to give you new life there, and you're going to be resurrected. And so cling to the promises, cling to his comfort, cling to his presence, cling to the final and ultimate promise that you will walk again, you will live again, you will never be in pain again. I once heard a pastor say this. I don't know who said it. Maybe it was Larry. (laughs) But the pastor said, the road to glory is never a straight one, but God sees to it that we do get there. Oh, I love that. Oh, I love that. And we see from this that Naomi's encouraged by everything that the women are saying and everything that's happened. The women take the son and name him Obed, which means servant. And we know that it wasn't Naomi's son, but we know that in that culture, families were so close that even your grandson felt like a son. And this chapter ends with the genealogy leading us up to King David. Now, as we close this service with less minutes than I would hope, we get to the application. I want to make four pleas, four appeals to you, church from the book of Ruth, by way of application. Because I think these four pleas, these four application points, these four things that we see in the book of Ruth, if we as a church would would prayerfully pursue these things and ask that the Spirit apply them in abundance, God is gonna do things in us and through us that we never thought or imagined possible. So four things, number one. Shine the light of self-sacrifice for others. Shine the light of self-sacrifice for others. Let me put it another way. Serve others sacrificially, and in so doing, let your light shine, that all men may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Remember, Ruth took place at the time of the judges as its backdrop. We read in Judges 21-25 that in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Which means that in the midst of the backdrop of Ruth is individuality, self-absorption, there was selfishness at a proportion not seen in the Old Testament, there was immorality running around. Rampantly because of their rampant individuality. Everyone was their own God. They were the master of their destiny. And in that moment, in that backdrop, there are two people that rise up and they shine brilliantly as examples. Ruth and Boaz. And we see in Ruth and Boaz, they stand out in their culture because they precisely do not live like everyone else lives. They do not live for themselves alone. Instead, they sacrifice themselves in the service of others. We see it in Ruth chapter 1, verse 16, where remember Naomi is trying to convince Ruth, go back, get out of here, go home. Remember what Ruth says? You better shut your mouth, Naomi. That's my translation. But she says, do not urge me to leave you or to uh, return from following for where you go, verse 16, I will go and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people should be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. I'm sacrificing my home. I'm sacrificing my land. I'm sacrificing my language. I'm sacrificing my customs and the things I'm comfortable because I'm pursuing you, Naomi. I'm going to love you. I'm laying it all down to serve you not only that but boaz was willing to marry ruth a moabite woman a widow barren he doesn't give a rip about what marrying her and if they were to have a son what that would do to his income he just knew he wanted to serve ruth a great sacrifice to himself remember brothers and sisters A disciple of Jesus is self-sacrificing. And we seek to serve others. And so Ruth and Boaz are a beautiful picture of discipleship. Right after Jesus tells his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, not a verse I read, but you can look it up, Luke chapter 9, right after he says, I must go and experience all these things, the very next words out of Jesus' mouth are this. If anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Self-sacrifice and self-denial is a requirement for discipleship. In other words, if you will not crucify yourself and deny yourself, you cannot be a disciple of Jesus. And therefore, if we are self-absorbed and we put ourselves first in all things and all we think about is how to benefit me you cannot be a disciple you may like Jesus from afar you may appreciate the Christian subculture but you are not a disciple that's why Paul writes in Ephesians 2 verse 14 do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation And Paul qualifies that as saying, among whom you shine as lights in the world. In other words, you wanna shine like a light in the world? Here's what you do, verse 17, Paul says, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. In other words, I don't grumble, I don't complain, because grumbling and complaining is the evidence that you don't believe that your present circumstances are under the purview of God's control and grace, sovereignty, and providence. You're not in control, God, and so I'm complaining to you. I hate this, God. Paul says, don't do that. Instead, let your light shine by submitting yourself to the sovereignty and providence of God and be willing to pour yourself out in the service of others. And Paul says, I do this and I rejoice. I'm glad to do it. So if we as a church want to be lights in a dark culture, we cannot be self-absorbed. We need to become selfless. For discipleship itself hinders on that. And in the service of others, being selfless, we will let our light shine as we serve and love and and willingly and gladly pour ourselves out for others. So I plead with you, church, let your light of self lessness shine in the service of others number two take risks to love others for God's sake for the sake of God for his glory for the joy of others take risks to love them when Ruth left excuse me yeah when Ruth left Moab she left her land her family her language her customs her comfort she left everything and the only thing she knew for sure was that she was going to be with Naomi and that Yahweh was going to provide sin. Everything was at risk. Everything. Boaz, when he married Ruth, he had no idea what would happen. He had no idea how it would financially imperil him. He had no idea whether or not she would even be able to bear a son. She was barren for 10 plus years. But you know what? both Ruth and Boaz they risked for the sake of love I will take the risk we as disciples of Christ we have been set free to love others well when we repent and believe the gospel our sins are blotted out we are forgiven we are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another And in so doing, God frees us from the condemnation of sin. God frees us from the penalty of sin. God frees us from the slavery of sin. God frees us from the fear of death. But what are we to use our freedom for? Galatians 5.13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for sin and selfishness but through love serve one another. The freedom that we have received in the person and work of Christ is a freedom to risk loving those around us, to serve those around us. Let us not use our freedom in Christ to proclaim self-absorption and self-interest where we say self-denial it's not what God asked me to do. God, in Christ, he's all about self-care. I got to drink my herbal tea. I got to take my time outs. I got to take my naps. Even if it means I don't help my kids with homework, I need me time. We have to take risks. Because there are people in this world who are not worthy of love but you are not asked to evaluate their worthiness and then love, you are told to love, love. So brothers and sisters, let's take risks to love others for God's sake. Number three, embrace ethnic diversity in order to conform our hearts to God's heart for the nations. Embrace ethnic diversity in order to conform our hearts to God's heart for the nations. The fact is, Ruth was a Moabite. She was not an Israelite. She was not Jewish. And she became an ancestor of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew 1.5. She came from Moab with Naomi because Yahweh had visited Israel and had given them bread. And remember, we preached this, that there was no bread in the house of bread. God did that. And so Elimelech and Naomi, Malan and Kilian, they all left to Moab. And then while they were in Moab, Malan and Kilian and Elimelech dies. And then God visits his people and they have food again. God did all that. And so when they come back to Israel... What we see is even the movements of people from Israel to Moab, Moab to Israel, all of that is a part of God's sovereign and providential work. And the Apostle Paul even says as much in Acts chapter 17, verse 26, that God made from one man every every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And look at this, having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. God is the determiner of these things. God is the sovereign ruler of these things. God is providentially moving peoples upon the earth. And if that's true, then it's got to be true today. That God is working. God is working in even the movements of people around the earth. Now, what's amazing about this is Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah, the risen Savior, crucified and resurrected for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus himself, in his genealogy in Matthew, is revealed to be a multi-ethnic person, at least because of Ruth. So think about this, brothers and sisters. There's a man named Caiaphas who was the high priest at the time of Jesus, and they were debating on what to do with Jesus, and they are like, we got to kill him. we got to get rid of this fool, because if we kill Jesus and get rid of him, at least we can save our nation, the nation of Israel. And so Caiaphas does this in John chapter 11, verse 50. He says, it's better that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. And then it says this editorial comment, verse 51, that he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, God sent his son Jesus into the world to save sinners, and the sinners whom God seeks to save are from all the nations. And I've read this, every time I preach, I at least quote it. Revelation 5, 9 and 10. In heaven, we see that they're singing a new song. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you are slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. God sent Jesus to shed his blood for the purchasing of people from every walk of life. If that doesn't indicate to us that God's heart is for the nations, I don't know what will convince you. But the reality is this. The blood that was spilled to purchase people, a multi-ethnic people, we have to realize that the blood itself was multi-ethnic blood. So the blood itself and what the blood accomplished speaks to the fact that God's heart is for the nations. Multi-ethnic. Remember when Jesus came the triumphal entry? He's riding on his donkey, comes in. He does all of that, and then the next day he goes to a nearby town. And in the morning, the first thing he does is he comes back to Jerusalem. And do you remember what he did? The very first thing he does is come back to Jerusalem, go to the temple, and he cleanses it. Do you remember what he said while he was cleansing the temple? Mark 11. Jesus says, "Is it not written, 'My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations'? The very fact that Jesus came from the east to the west to signify He's reversing the curse of, of Adam, and He's coming as the Messiah." Because he has to come to Jerusalem to die and to rise again in order to purchase sinners for himself from every tongue, tribe, nation, and people group. And the fact that his first act the very next day is to go to the temple and make sure that everyone understands God cares about the nations. It's an indication, brothers and sisters, we have got to be people who are concerned for the nations. And it also means this, brothers and sisters, we cannot have a racist heart in any way, shape, or form. For racism, in and of itself, is the antithesis to the gospel. It is the antithesis. It is the opposite of the work of God. And also, it is the opposite of what God's heart is. We cannot be effective in our missions. We cannot be effective in our ministry if we harbor racism in our hearts. And so I plead with you, embrace ethnic diversity so that your heart will be conformed to the heart of God. And God's heart is for the nations. And lastly, this. I'm, I'm trying to plead. I'm trying to, I plead with you to trust the sovereignty of God. I'm, just, I'm pleading with you. God is good. And God is faithful. And so I just plead with you, church, let us trust the sovereignty of God. The book of Ruth has demonstrated over and over the details of which God is involved in. Now, when I was at Biola, I was a jerk. And um, (laughs) one of the things that I was so jerky about was I was convinced that there is no way that the Bible teaches that the sovereign plan of God, his providence and his will could ever, 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 ever include suffering. That's incompatible. I, I, I was on the internet watching every video I could watch. I was reading every book I could to prove that anyone who believed God is sovereign over all things is a liar and a heretic and doesn't know what the Bible says. So I spent a lot of time <laughs> trying to prove that I was right and everyone else are idiots. And then I got hired at a church and there was a wise pastor Who is listening to me rant on and pulling my ignorance together with other ignorant people. And we're just telling people, if you believe in the sovereignty of God and that God allows evil and God actually ordains evil, like, oh man, what a heretic, they're going to hell for sure. And so one thing I said to this pastor was, I'm convinced that the Bible doesn't teach that because the Christian church has never taught that. It has never taught that the sovereignty of God and the suffering That we experience are somehow compatible and the pastor in his grace and his patience said really are you willing to read some about that and of course me being in my pride and arrogance was like why do i need to read it i already know it (laughs) so he said how about you read this little theology document it's called the heidelberg catechism it was written about 400 years ago I said, okay. And he said, I want you to read question 27 and 28. So I want to read that to you now. Question 27, catechism, question and answer form, theology. The question is asked, what do you mean by the providence of God? What do you mean by the providence of God? What is meant by that word? And the answer is 400 years ago. What is meant is the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby as it were by his hand, God upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures so that the herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Yes, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So I naturally asked this pastor, I said, let me ask you this then is it really possible that God governs even the sinful acts of people to make them ultimately serve his wise purposes without God himself being a sinner and doing so? (laughs) Booyah. (laughs) And to my dismay and shock and horror, he said, yes. So I asked, how in the world can God, how can he do that? And this wise pastor said, if God cannot govern human sin to accomplish his wise purposes, then there is no Christian gospel. He said the gospel is the good news that Jesus was crucified and risen for our sins. And he made this point. If there was no crucifiers, there could not have been a crucifixion. Uh Uh-oh. So he asked me, so if God said that his son would come as the Messiah and be crucified, God must have also ordained that there be crucifiers to carry out his plan. Uh Uh-oh. And I went through a couple years of just being absolutely thrown on my face in humility. That God is God and I'm not. God is in the heavens, He does all that He pleases. Now what does this big theology, what does it have to do with me or us? Give me something practical. Romans 8:28. We know, as Christians, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purposes all things brothers and sisters all calamities all evils all setbacks god is working and you can take confidence that he's going to work because your story isn't done yet God still got something so just wait and trust that's why paul wrote in second corinthians i love this where he wrote this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison paul is calling suffering in this world light and momentary and we're thinking this fool has no idea what i'm going through and then we read about paul's life in second corinthians 11 he's been beaten with rods shipwrecked hungry naked stoned and left dead and now we start to go oh wait a minute maybe i don't know so much about what it means to suffer how is it that paul can say A lifetime of suffering is momentary. How in the world can the apostle Paul says, the weightiness of the sin and suffering of this world is light? What's wrong with this guy? (laughs) And the reality is because Paul knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that whatever avails us and whatever approaches us and whatever, whatever comes our way, that God has promised, I'm with you, I'll comfort you I'll preserve you and I'll see you to the end and when you get to the end you will be resurrected and glorified and I will fulfill all that I have intended to fulfill you will dwell in the place in which righteousness dwells called the new heavens and new earth and then I read question 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism remember the pastor told me to read both so let me ask you this question how does any of this theology actually help The answer, or the question is, what advantage is it to us to know that God is created and by his providence does still uphold all things? What's the advantage? The answer, that we may be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and that in all things which may hereafter befall us, we place our firm trust in our faithful God and Father, knowing that nothing shall separate us from his love. Since all creatures are so in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. So when we look at the book of Job, and you remember Job, he lost all his livestock, his servants, his children. In Job 1, 20 to 22 he stands up and he rips his robe, shaves his head, fell on the ground, he's worshiping the Lord. He says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Yahweh gave, and Yahweh has taken away, but blessed be the name of Yahweh. And in all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong, it says in verse 22. And then after Job's health was taken from him, he begins to scratch his open wounds with shards of pottery. And his wife says to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he says to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? And in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Notice Job's response to suffering, and notice Peter's response to suffering. Job is said to have not sinned, where Peter is called Satan. What's the difference? Job is trusting in the sovereignty of God. Peter was not so i plead with you church let us not sin by saying it's incompatible for god to be sovereign and providential and also for us to suffer but instead in the midst of our suffering and hardship may we remember romans 8 i'm going to read this and we'll close what then shall we say to these things if god is for us who can be against us he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Lord we we know that you are who you say you are and God grant us the ability to trust you and to cling to your word and to crave the truth of your word and to want it to be taught and proclaimed and sung and prayed with utter accuracy and so God I I pray that you would take what we have learned and that through the Spirit's power apply it to us, that we would be the people who are willingly and gladly sacrificing in the service of others, that we would risk to love others well, embracing ethnic diversity so that we would have the heart that you have for the nations trusting that you are sovereign and you are good and you are faithful and you're going to do what you began to do you will see it to fruition and completion so god grant us these things in in abundance we ask in jesus name amen